0: Hey, before we start, just want to give you a heads up that this is recorded from a Clubhouse conversation just so you aren't blindsided. So without further ado, enjoy.
1: You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue.
0: All right, everyone, welcome. Welcome today, super excited to bring you Howard Marks, who is the founder of not only Activision, but also the founder of Acclaim Games. And he's, I'm going to let him talk about his story in a little bit. But uh, right now, the company that he runs is called Start Engine, and he's doing some really exciting stuff over there. Going to be really excited to talk about the different financing options available to people. Some of it, I think, is a no-brainer, where the risk almost seems to me like It's too good to be true, right? But we're going to let Howard speak to that. So Howard, you've been on the the Leveling Up podcast before. Welcome back. Excited to have you on Clubhouse doing this.
2: Thank you, Eric. It's always amazing to talk to you. I learn things every day and I, I see what you're doing for the community and helping them grow their businesses. It's amazing.
0: I appreciate it. Well, let's start with the the Activision story the acclaim story because that's that's the, you know, fun stuff from back then. I remember the first time I got involved with Activision was when I when I bought MechWarrior Warrior 2 with my first computer when I was about 8 or 9 years old. So, let's talk about that story because I think it's fascinating how you managed to get those deals done.
2: Well, MechWarrior Warrior 2, I was a tester for it because we were still a very small company then. Uh maybe, I don't know, under 100 people. So, I would bring the game home, and literally go through the whole game multiple times to find bugs. Wow! <laughs> so I actually played it a lot, many times.
0: <laughs> That—that you're a very expensive tester, so that's amazing. So you're probably a lot better than I was.
2: Well, I knew how the code was written, so I—I I guess I, I had some advantages.
0: Amazing. So let's talk about Activision. I mean, you didn't, the way you got this company or you got Activision and the way you got Acclaim, it was kind of through unconventional means, right? Do you want to tell everyone about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Activision was probably the first independent publisher of games to be created in probably the entire world. At that time, Atari was a very famous game console. It was basically the de facto standard, and four engineers left, basically four founders, or I think a couple were engineers, left Atari to start Activision. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1979, I think, if I remember right. I was in high school then. Anyway, they left, and they started doing extremely well. The company was growing fast, and what happened for the history buffs, Atari imploded. Why? because they made so many bad games and one famous game called ET became a horrible game and people stopped liking the machine and not paying attention to it anymore and it kind of they built too much inventory too many games it just imploded and Activision was dependent on this whole Atari wave and so they went to make some games for Sega but Sega mm-hmm. never took off they started having financial difficulties we enter right then it's 1991 and we see the company it's a publicly traded company activision at the time and it's basically going down to a very low market cap um, we're talking in the millions maybe 10 million 20 million maybe less and we're like wow we we could maybe we could buy the company you know we found an investor out of Canada. One of the original investors, they were a VC. We went to the VC and said, "Look, your investment's not doing great. The, the stock's down to like millions of dollars. Your your 30% is worth maybe, I don't know, half a million. We'll pay you a lump sum of three hundred, four hundred thousand bucks." We thought they would laugh at us and say, "Yeah, you know, this is dumb. You know, we'll wait till the company recovers." We thought the company wouldn't recover because there's just too many problems. So the investor said, done. Well, we'll sell it to you. So we bought that controlling share of 30%. It's not control, but sufficiently enough shares in the company that we can have a say. And we we sent a fax to the CEO. And that time you used fax. You didn't use uh, email. And we said, hey- we're not happy, we're investors, we want to take over the company. And the guy was like, what, who are you? You know, we were. I was tw- 29 years old when we did this deal and we had a little bit of money, we didn't have a lot, but we were building businesses and trying hard. And so finally, after negotiation, the, the CEO said to us, look, if you give me a severance and you pay this, and I'm whatever, I'll give you the company. So we we're like, done. So we take over the business. We we get rid of the board. We put in a new board, and then we were like, "Okay, what are we supposed to do next?" The banks were involved, and the banks were very tough. They had millions of dollars in, uh, invested in the company in terms of debt. We had to get rid of them because they will take over the company again, and then we lose our shares. You know, and that doesn't make sense. So we basically took every dollar we had, and that was a, a close to nearly $2 million. Every dollar we had, we just took it and gave it to the banks and took them out. Now we had a clean company, and we decided, you know what? All the debt, there was more stuff going on. Once you got rid of the banks, that was great, but then there was all sorts of stuff, the rent and so many problems. So we took the company bankrupt, and that was in November '91 and literally bankrupted the company, restructured everything. All the people who were owed money had stock. We had stock, everybody ended up with stock. We we emerged out of this bankruptcy with stock for everyone. And we were able to bring the company back onto the NASDAQ and relist. But in order to do that, we needed more money. So we went to some of our original investors and got a little bit of money from them. And these are friends. These were not sharks or VCs. So the whole story you're hearing here, there are no VCs involved whatsoever. There's just a bunch of people. So we got the company backlisted. We raised some money. And now we, what do we do? We decide, you know what? We're going to move the company from Mountain View, which is in California, Northern California, to LA. And everyone's like, what are you doing? LA? Why LA? But we thought, look, the future, we think the future of entertainment interactive entertainment games and whatever is going to be with content you know art graphics sound music voice whatever and that was different than what people thought people all thought of games as a, as, a, as a programmer thing you know it's all about programmers because they program the games but not the people who did who the creatives right in fact at the time we took over activision Typically a game was done by two or three people. You know, one person was the programmer, someone else was doing the graphics, and then one person the sounds, you know. Not a big team like you see today. So we moved the company down to LA with 10 people, basically. That was what we were down to, 10 people. One of the teams that was left was Mech Warrior. <laughs> there was, I think, two people for the Warrior game. Wow. And we had Zork and we had all sorts of, you know, pitfall some really cool games for those who, who, who know the early games that Activision did. And then we started a little office and decided, okay, we're going to rebuild it. And we needed a vision because I think what's important for a company is to have a mission, a vision, and a purpose. And our view was this. Everybody told us, you know, this is a dumb deal. Games will never work. Games are dead. And we thought, well, we think games will have a life in a different format. At the time, most games were done on cartridges. These cartridges were hardware. They were ROMs, and a ROM is a read-only memory and contained the code of the game, and so you couldn't couldn't put much on it. We thought, you know what, maybe this new thing, this new technology called CDs, compact discs, DVDs today, right, And who knows, DVDs are gone right now, could have a real future. Why? Because it's cheap to, to print and you can store i don't know a thousand times more stuff in it than those cartridges but what does it look like when you expand by thousand the ability to have entertainment in a game and so we thought it looks like this it looks like video audio music real music not little dinky sounds it looks like you need a director you need a producer you need artists you need 3d Art and textures. I mean, we saw that kind of, you know, that was geek stuff. And we said, no, 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 no. This is going to work. So we put our whole budgets into making these CD games. And just then, Sony announces and they say, you know, we want to go into the business and we're going to make a machine called the PlayStation. with guess what? Not a cartridge, a CD player. I'm like, wow, that's big. And then followed Microsoft said hey you know we want to go into the business too with the Xbox and we're going to put a CD player and the only one left with cartridges was was Nintendo Nintendo had cartridges and they were like they didn't know what was going on and uh, and so we were prepared we had already done several games on CD for the PC so we knew what we were doing and and it took off so in many ways the strategy worked Going to LA was great because we had the ability to to attract a new set of talent that was not from the game industry. They were from the entertainment industry, from other industries, and that augmented what we were doing. And if we stayed in Silicon Valley, we would done. You know, we would have been with the guys who say, "Hey, I can do pixels. I can do, you know, I can do like little things and some beeps and sounds." But we were working with people who made sounds for the movies. That was it. Original and unique, I would say. Today it sounds obvious, but not at the time. So that whole transformation we did for the company was major. But now we also raised a lot of money. Uh, We raised about forty million dollars later down the road. That today doesn't sound like a lot of money. At that time, it was. And again, no VCs, no VCs. And that we were because we were publicly traded. We were able to access the public markets now. This was all new to me. This was not something we did before. It was not something we, we understood. We just went through it and got it done. And our company, when we restructured it, was number 34 on the list of the top game. Publishers. And we the number one game company at that time was Acclaim Entertainment. And they had Mortal Kombat and they had NBA Jam. And we we're looking at them and we were like, wow, they're so big. Oh, it's unbelievable. EA was, I think, number two, Electronic Arts. And so we said, look, we're gonna try to grow the business. Who knows? And I have to tell you, for, for, for those who are in the entrepreneurs, most of the time. If you focus on your business, you have passion, grit, your competitors will lose steam. That's usually what I see happening. They they either sell out early and then whoever buys them are not motivated, but most people lose steam. So they die by their own sword or they get discouraged on their own. We We didn't do anything to them. We just kept building our business and we were focused. And I think that was a major difference. And, you know, today, Activision is the number one publisher in the world, maybe not in the world now that, you know, the Chinese are involved, but it's certainly one of the largest.
0: All right. Amazing, amazing story. So before I continue on, because there's so much I want to dive into there. So Elisa just joined us and Elisa's amazing, super smart. She's got a company called Queens Gaming Collective. I believe that's what it's called, if, if memory serves me, right? Elisa, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? And maybe you can ask a question uh, if you two haven't become, I, I don't think you two have met, right?
3: Sure. Eric, always a pleasure to see you. Howard, so incredibly wonderful to connect. I know we spoke briefly on DM, but having actually had the opportunity to serve as a senior strategic advisor at Activision Blizzard during the Call of Duty League launch and being a super fan and now running a gaming collective, I am fascinated and sitting here taking notes on everything that you just said. (laughs) So I am here to learn as much as to support and moderate. But yeah, I mean, Eric hit the nail on the head. I'm a former marketing executive. I've worked at agencies a lot of my career over the last 15 years, spent five years at Diageo leading culture and partnerships for the multicultural and luxury brands, specifically Ciroc, Don Julio, a lot of the vodka and tequila portfolio. And I left To launch Loop, which is a change agency that worked with Activision Blizzard, as well as continuing work with Diageo, BuzzFeed Complex, quite a few really interesting brands, startups and corporations looking to embed in culture meaningfully with influencers and activations. So for the last several months, gosh, I think we're four months old now, we launched Queens Gaming Collective which is a talent management, media, and merchandising company in the, as you know, $172 billion gaming industry. So we are trying to shake the table to the best of our ability to really push for diversity and gender equity in the form of economic inclusivity, including giving equity to the women on our roster who are talent partners as opposed to a cast. So I am beyond excited about this. The idea of Startup Secrets with one of the Activision founders is literally a dream for me. So love to be included and and really here to listen as much as to support.
0: Awesome. Incredible. Elisa, feel free to come in when you have any questions. So so I'm just going to kind of dive deeper. So Howard, I mean, l- let's just put things into perspective, okay? So let's back up a second. You're, you're age 29. You have a couple hundred grand to spend on this company that's going down the drains. What were you doing then to get that first couple hundred grand? And how did you even know to buy this company out of bankruptcy? Because I'm assuming, you know, it sounds like a lot of it, you kind of just figured out as you were going, correct? Because I don't want people to feel intimidated because that's really what business is. You're kind of just figuring it out as you're building the plane.
2: What happened was my business partner, Bobby, and myself had a, a software company. In terms of the software, we were making software for computers, personal computers. These were the computers that were different than the laptops you have today. They were home computers. And we were making software, and we were very interested in the gaming aspect of, uh, of the home computers, and there were games for home computers at that time. You can play games on your laptop today, but then at that point, most laptops most computers were desktops and they were IBM and they were super boring and you're not playing games on those. We were making games already or we were publishing games, but not nothing really spectacular. So we knew software, we knew what was going on, and we needed a way in into the business. As young people, we, we just wanted to be in the game business. And so, so what do we do? We would look at all of the public companies out there. Electronic Arts was public, Activision was public at that time. Acclaim was not yet public or or were about to go public. And so we started looking around and we fell on Activision. Why? Because it had a great brand, well-known, very famous at that time. And the management was clearly not doing its job. There were a lot of problems around it. And so we decided, okay, this could be a target. But the question is, how do you get in? How do you find who the investors are? So we hired an attorney who did simple research. I mean, today I I would know how to do it, but at that time we didn't, who went and looked at who are the largest shareholders and found this company called Amasco in Canada and said, okay, well, one of the largest shareholders is right here. Why don't you call them up? And at that point, you know, there's no email. And so we just made a phone call.
0: Got it. Okay. By the way, it's not like when you first took it over, it went gangbusters, right? Because, you know, in 95 or 96, that's when I started to play Mech Warrior 2. So how long did it take you to kind of figure it out once you took it over? Because it wasn't like, again, you took it over and, oh, my God, we got something amazing, right?
2: We had no idea what we were doing, literally. We didn't know who to keep at the company, who to get rid of. We didn't know how you made a game. We didn't know how you sold it. In fact, we even contacted the biggest customers. One of them was Walmart. And they took our phone call, I guess. Why not? And they said, hey, you want to sell us games? We have $3 million of inventory for you to take back. And if you don't take it back, we'll never buy games from you again. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. Then in England, the guy was running the UK subsidiary, basically decided to sue us stole, took money away, took all sorts of stuff. You know, the company car was a Porsche. Who has a company car? Porsche took it away. I mean, it was unbelievable. The stuff in the lawsuits. Now, most of the lawsuits were terminated because of the bankruptcy, but the UK subsidiary was not bankrupted. So we, we, I mean, it's just trouble over trouble. And it's like, at one point we're like, how bad can it get? How worse can it get? And we just didn't care. We're just like, okay, whatever. So we decided to keep MechWarrior. That was our first decision. And we said MechWarrior 2 needs to exist. Zork was another game we said needs to exist. We just basically pared down to three or four games. For MechWarrior 2, I have a story for you, Eric. It may have never seen the light of day. And the reason is very simple. We were programming on those PCs, the IBM PCs, you know, PC compatibles. And the maximum memory you could do at that time was 64 kilobytes. And our game needed more. I and mean, I remember the programmers were working so hard on it, couldn't get it done. And the only way to get it done was to go to what we call 16-bit. Now, today everything is 64-bit or more. And they had to redo a bunch of software. I mean, they had to rewrite a lot of the programming, And we looked at ourselves and said, we've been doing this for nearly a year and a half. This is awful. We're going to lose. It's going to take us another year. So I decided I had to go to England for a convention. And I said, you know what, if they can't get it done, I'm going to cancel this thing. I'll cancel the game. The team kind of realized what was going on and they worked night and day, literally 24 seven for an entire week, got it done and showed us a demonstration of how you could be on a larger memory, instead of 64K, now you can go to 640K. I mean, it was like, oh my God. The game overnight, instead of being clunky and not working, just was raging, was working so well. And when you saw the game, when you got it, whether you had a 3D chip or not on your computer, this thing was unbelievable. It just transformed the idea of a 3D combat game which later, Call of Duty, all those games, they're amazing, but that was one of the first.
0: I think I was playing online, right? Mech Warrior 2, you could play online.
2: Yes. So there was an online version that was not ours, that was not an Activision game. The online version was, but I, I don't think it was 3D fast with graphics and textures. I, no, I, I think
0: so. Yeah, no, I, I got completely destroyed and I just, I, I think I gave up immediately.
2: <laughs> Maybe it was ours because we did. Allow online with local error networks, but it,
0: were you on AOL when you're doing it? No, I, I never had AOL. I had some other ISP. I was trying to make my ping really low, so I was a little more sophisticated.
2: Okay, so yeah, so then at that point, yes, that was us, and but we allowed people to use, but it, there was no such thing as internet gaming. By the way, that that was not a thing. It had to be done with local error networks, and you had to do all sorts of crazy things to go and do it, but. The point was, I think at one point we sold like $60 million of that game. It was just unbelievable. That took us to a whole new level as a company. And then tons of other games. Pitfall came out, and that did great. Tony Hawk came out, that did great. And, you know, just everything came together. But it was not really, there was some luck involved, but it was true, sheer work. Cool. It was an overnight success that took us at least 15 years.
0: I love that. Well, there's a couple of summaries, a couple of takeaways. And then Elisa, if you have any questions, feel free to jump in and then or I can continue on. So, Howard, I think one a you know, we don't really know what we're doing when we first kind of get involved with in things and things take a lot longer than we think they're going to take. So maybe thinking in decades is probably a lot more helpful. And then also too, you know, these other tools that you use. Right. So you. You utilize lawyers you don't know what you don't know so you get lawyers in place to help you with the acquisition you buy it for you know pennies on the dollar right Um, and you decide to if somehow you figure out how to rally the troops to to work day in and day out obviously that's not sustainable long term so there's just a lot in there and then also utilizing bankruptcy as a tool as well so you utilize bankruptcy correct me if I'm wrong to basically get the company but you also use bankruptcy to, to kind of CYA cover your ass right correct me if I'm wrong Howard
2: that is correct. The, the, the beauty of bankruptcy, for, for those who may or may not know, typically the corporation dies and reemerges emerges clean. Uh, if you add retail spaces, you can decide which ones to keep, which ones to get rid of, and there's no penalty for that. Same with any contract you have. Any contract, you can look at it and say, you yeah, know, I don't want this one. This one's a bad one. Oh, I'll keep this one. And it cleans up the corporation. There are a lot of benefits. Now, again, You know, there's maybe a stigma out there that bankruptcies is bad and this and that. But actually, it's actually one of the big innovations of our economy. There are many companies that go through bankruptcy and General Motors went through bankruptcy and emerged much cleaner, much healthier.
0: I love that. Alisa, you got anything?
3: Yeah, I love the deconstruction of the success story because I think sometimes you see these massive conglomerates and multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies and you forget how hard it is. It looks so easy from the outside when you think about how much it takes to be an overnight success. And a lot of times it is 10, 15, 20 years. And I also really love the idea of in a much more eloquent way, Howard, you were kind of like, we didn't know, we figured it out as we went. And I think there's something really powerful in that because that is where innovation and invention are often born is in the, I don't know, and in the white space of we're going to work it out and we're going to build the cars, we're driving down the freeway and the magic happens. And so I'm really curious, you know, you've had many layers to your career, right? And now with Start Engine and everything that you've done in between, where did you get the most energy in your career? Is it the most exciting now, now that you've had all of the success and in you're investing and supporting in the investment of the next wave of new business? Was it the beginning when everything was new and shiny and unknown, somewhere in between? Just wonder where you get your energy and what kept you going when the things were really high and then when the times were really low?
2: I have some very, very low times if you want to hear about it. that It's dark, very dark. I mean, at one point, we were running our business out of college at University of Michigan. We had no more money. We were on the unemployment lines waiting for a check. It was very dark. We were bankrupt every other week with Activision. We didn't know if it's going to work. We put all every dollar we had in it, and it was a lot of uncertain times. But you know the beauty of that is that it can only improve, and we knew it, and so we figured if we focused enough, we will make it through and become successful. But in terms of what got me the energy, I think innovation was the main thrust. It's if you were, if you told me say, look here, here's a game company, just run it. It's fine. Just keep working with the staff and make some more games and whatever. That doesn't sound interesting to me. For me personally, I need the innovation. I need the disruption. The reason we did Activision, because we had a belief. Our belief was, one, the game industry is not dead. That was the consensus out there from a lot of people. And the second thing we believed in is that the future of entertainment is going to be, you know, multimedia, beautiful graphics, sound and entertainment at a new level that most people never experienced. We believed in it and we needed to wait so this to happen. And the CD-ROM was one one piece of it because you had more storage. But certainly... We couldn't hire people who knew how to make rich games at that time. We had to train them. So flash forward almost 30 years later, I'm now pondering myself and saying, what's my next move? What's an innovation I want to do? And, and I tell you, it came in a very strange way. It came with me investing in great companies, women-led companies and companies led by all sorts of amazing entrepreneurs here in LA. Some of them are well-known now and doing great and putting some money in there and helping them grow their businesses. And most of my investments failed. Most of them went to zero. Most of these entrepreneurs could not raise money. And the discouragement, just watching them you know, not getting anywhere and basically quitting just drove me nuts. And to me, it was, I felt the failure, you know, I, I failed too in my career, but I never gave up. So there's a big difference here. You know, you can fail, but you just don't give up. They would give up. They would say, yeah, I can't raise money. It's unfair or I'm not this, I'm not that. And I said, no, 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 you're great. You should be able to continue. Well, guess what? Most of them quit. Most of them went away and I said, you know what, there's something wrong with this. So that's why Start Engine became an equity crowdfunding business, you know, with a mission to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. But it was all about the innovation. The innovation was that the status quo said that you had to either get money from a VC or an angel. The banks were not lending, that's for sure. So what are people supposed to do? And I, I really dreamt that... Wow! If you could get the crowd in, that's a whole new source of capital. That's way more money than the VCs. I mean, look, we're a country where there's at least thirty million people who invest constantly. You so saw that was GameStop. Minimum thirty million. It's probably eighty million investors. There's four hundred VC firms. You know, they invest maybe one hundred eighty billion a year. That's a lot of money. But that's it. Done. Two thousand deals a year. That's it. And I said to myself, if we could expand this to, I don't know, thousands of companies a year, maybe 10,000, and then allow the investors to invest and then trade, we're creating our own stock market. We're creating our own ecosystem. We're going to transform finance. And that's why I went into this Start Engine story. And I'm telling you, I'm having as much fun or not more fun than I had with Activision. Activision, I had so much fun because we were – all in one floor in here in Brentwood. And I don't know who went to bed when, but we were there 24 seven. It was just crazy stuff. And it was so much fun. And the end result was a big success. And that's not usually the case for most companies, but we stuck with it. And I think when I look at start engine, I see the same thing. I said, well, if I stick with this and I keep Plugging away, it's going to work, and I have a great team of very, very talented people who none of them come from the financial industry—not one person—and they're learning. We're learning. I'm learning, and we're going to figure this out.
0: I just want to add something to that. So, Howard, just to put things into perspective for people, too, it's, it's not like this is a Howard Marks. You know, he had a claim, Activision. You know, he turned those around. Start Engine wasn't all sunshine and flowers because I remember back when we had our, when I was trying to save the company, that I took over about a year into it, you had your start engine office in the same co-working building. And it was one of those kind of one bedroom or not one bedroom, those one office, little kind of cubicles, right? It took time for it. I mean, this, this has to be what, seven, eight years ago or so. And then it only was till now, just recently that this thing started to take off. Am I right or wrong there?
2: Well, yeah, you're right. When you saw me in that space, we were doing the accelerator, where we were just making some small investments in, in lots of companies, and it was fun. It's not. It was a business that was interesting, because you had a lot of entrepreneurs coming in and out the office all the time, but it was not disrupting a whole huge industry. It was more doing something for entrepreneurs, building a community of entrepreneurs in Los Angeles. It just didn't have a footprint that I was accustomed to when I built... Bigger companies. And I think the reality is, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't know how to do anything else. For me, Start Engine started as an accelerator. It was great. Well, we made some nice investments. Most of them failed, a vast majority failed. I cared about every single entrepreneur, like literally. I was in touch with them, talking to them, no matter whether it worked or not. And Maybe at the end of the day, I saw an opportunity because that's what I do. And I said, what if we transformed finance? What if we completely changed the game? What would it look like? And I had that experience with Activision. And I think, you know what? I think I could do it again. Now, hey, let's see. We're not done with the story. We're just beginning
3: it.
0: Amazing. Alisa, I saw you unmute. Did you want to add something?
3: Gosh, I I honestly don't even know where to start because I'm so inspired, so I'm going to keep it really concise. But you said a couple of things, Howard, that really hit to my core personally as an entrepreneur, because I also wouldn't wish it on anyone. I think that there's a wiring that happens where you actually can't do anything else. And I had the opportunity to have what I and many people would consider a dream job at Diageo for five years. You know, it was awesome on paper, and I really enjoyed it. But when I left, I I joked that I retired from corporate rather than resigned because I just didn't have it in me. And you said a couple of things that really resonated with me. One, not knowing how many nights were sleepless because in it right now, first-time venture-backed entrepreneur, incredible company, trying to completely shift a monstrous industry. So those sleepless nights and the exhaustion and the excitement is, a huge part of the process and you speak to resilience and grit and how it was this stick to it and inability to give up delusional passion delusional belief and that belief is something that you carried not only through you and your partner and activision and all of the businesses after that but also into all of the entrepreneurs and all of your investments throughout my career i was always chastised for caring too much Literally, my bosses would be like, you care too much about everything, literally everything. But in some ways, I think that's what makes a great entrepreneur is caring too much about the details, caring too much about the people, caring too much about the content and asking what if you use the phrase what if. And I think that empty space after that question is where everything else comes out. And so I think it's just so fascinating. And I don't know that I have a specific question as so much as a thank you, because I think sometimes you need that affirmation that all of your crazy is not for not. And I have the incredible blessing of looking down in the audience and seeing most of my content team from Queens getting to listen in on this conversation. And I see my friend, Jin Lion just joined us as well for what's going to be an incredible conversation But yeah, just as an entrepreneur and as a woman working in gaming and as someone that has followed your career and has had the opportunity to work with executives at the companies that you've built, I just think the passion and the vision and, again, the grit. I think people underestimate the grit. It's not easy. It's not as pretty as it is gritty. So I just really commend you for not only... What it took to get there and here but also being so transparent with the audience it's about the authenticity of the journey so i'm sure it's a perfect time for wolf to introduce himself but i just wanted to say to eric this is such an incredible conversation and i know that we're in the future of marketing so i do wanted to give a quick plug and mini reset for the room because for those that joined, I know we've doubled in size in just the last 10 minutes. The Future of Marketing is the club at the top. It's the greenhouse above Howard. If you want to tap it, some of the incredible folks on stage do these rooms often here. You're in Startup Secrets with Activision founder Howard Marks, who has not just been dropping gems, but unpacking incredible anecdote with a journey that all of us can learn from. Eric is one of my favorite people on this app. He's the author of Leveling Up that is coming out on the 24th. He's a podcaster with over 50 million downloads and number four on Apple, maybe higher by now. I'm not sure. I've been definitely listening. (laughs) And he is just a pretty incredible voice and knowledge source on this app. Wolf, I will let you introduce yourself because no one does an intro like you, but having known you for the well over 10 years and getting to see your journey across industries and now as an angel investor advisor and 3x tech startup co-founder really amazing to see you pop up so thank you again Howard I cannot tell you how timely your advice is and how timely your stories are on a very personal level and Eric thank you for having me tonight and Wolf please please introduce yourself
4: wow elisa i don't know how to follow up with that i mean you are one of the most incredible speakers in the entirety of of clubhouse and and your accomplishments are just tour de force in its own eric thank you shout out to you you do such incredible things in the podcast world i don't need to repeat what elisa just said so profoundly and it is just an honor and a privilege to be here Howard Marks, I don't know what to say about you. I've been following your career for, my gosh, decades. Just legendary career, especially spawning from Activision. And I mean, the first time I met you in 2014, I completely fanboyed over you in person and I tried to hide it and I've been trying to hide it ever since because I... Kept, uh, we,
3: you're a better it. man than I. I just totally fangirled out, so you have way more composure. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy to do. Howard is one of the most intelligent people. When I first had the, uh, the privilege of meeting him in person in 2015, one of the smartest human beings I think I've ever met. Just watching everything that you've been doing and then pioneering what you're doing uh, currently with Start Engine. I mean, you are the The forefather of this this crowdfunding movement. And I am just elated and delighted and excited. I'm beyond thrilled to be here, always with Elisa and Eric. But Howard Marks, my God, I love and adore you, sir. We've been in and around each other's lives for the last four or five years. And to be on stage with you, truly a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eric, Elisa, and Howard. Thank you.
0: Amazing.
2: Jim, Jim, so good to see you. And by the way, you introduced me to the notion that you can have cool shoes so i followed your leadership <laughs> on that
0: that's so funny oh my goodness <laughs> what, what shoes were you what shoes were you wearing jen
4: howard do you want to tell him
0: yeah yeah <laughs> this i think you were
2: going to um south by southwest and i think on the plane you had this these shoes i think was like with bears on it. Is that is that what it was
4: <laughs> they were solid gold glittery high tops with bears on the tongues of the high tops. They were Adidas Originals, Jeremy Scott capsule collections.
2: Unbelievable. You are way ahead of your curb here. Let me tell you this, because uh, now these things are collector items.
0: He still is ahead. I mean, look how early he was on the, on this platform. But uh, yeah, I mean, Wolf and uh, Elisa. I mean, Elisa is such a great speaker. Wolf, I mean, just on all the time such a great moderator and such a great I mean every single time he introduces someone I'm just like wow he's I feel like he's done like so much research and every single person such just I mean I, I'm just so excited to be up here and I don't want to fanboy or go crazy so I'm going to keep going here with questions what we're going to do in a little bit we're going to pull people up for questions but I want to continue down the story a little bit the journey a little more and Jin or Elisa please feel free to jump in if you have questions too um, I'm going to try to get a, get a little tactical as well just so people get value and Howard just so you know there's I think there's about 200 people in the room now so i I think uh you know it'll get a little bigger so let's talk about start engine a little bit i mean there are a couple of things that are super exciting coming down the pipeline and I, I can speak to a company that you worked with angels and entrepreneurs. So I just want people to start to become a little aware of the options that are available. It doesn't have to be everything you see in TechCrunch. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to raise a series a, or, you know, raise from VC. So what options are available? What trends are you excited about? Just to go into tactics a little bit, and then I'll come back to stories.
2: It's pretty well known that the first hundred thousand, 50,000, 500,000 is the hardest to raise. I think everybody's figured it out by now because it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. Because most VCs will say, ah, oh, too early, not interesting. Who knows what they mean by that, whether it's they don't like you, they don't like your business, maybe they are bored, who knows? It starts with that initial capital and it's so important to get it. And so when we designed Start Engine, was like, okay, well, how do we get people the first 50, 100, 500, to 200, whatever it takes and it was all about building a community of investors and using the new regulation called the JOBS Act regulation crowdfunding regulation A these are new ideas that were created by congress and adopted by the securities exchange commission we were one of the first to use it probably among the first when we started 5 years ago it was like okay well getting 50,000 was a success we were we were excited 100,000 was great today it's not as exciting because our average is half a million. So that means half the companies get at least half a million and, and many get a million and many millions more. And the regulation is changing starting in March. And now you can go up to five million. And so we think it's only going to get bigger. So when we thought 50,000 was important to start a company because that's your first dollars and you can now reach to get Half a million or more, maybe a million, maybe five million, it changes the game. It's completely different. And why is it working or why we believe it works is because we think the American public wants him. They want to be part of the next thing. They know that until the Jobs Act came out, they had no right to be in it. They were not they were told they couldn't invest. And it took eighty years, eighty years to get to the point where we can say now today, yes. Main Street, the guys who are on Robin Hood, these people can now invest in in the next big thing. And we believe that our our country, the American dream, the idea that you can be an entrepreneur, rags to riches is real. And I think what we do, our role is an enabler. We We just want to enable as many entrepreneurs as we can. So we've done about 600 companies so far. And I feel bad because that's nothing. That's a drop. There are 600,000 new businesses formed a year. And so what are we doing here for them? And that's where we're going to go. We we're thinking in thousands of numbers. I don't know how big we can do it, but it's working.
0: Got it. And Howard, I want to add something to, I think as a marketer, what I'm super excited about is, is the fact that, you know, if you have a bunch of people putting in $50, $100 or so into your company, you could potentially have thousands of investors. And you know when people put their money in it just shows that well a they care but b they're good that's going to be your army of people that will support you right so they'll follow you around if you need them to do something you can call on your community to help this is assuming that you're still continuing to you know work hard and be honest with your investor updates right um is that something that you've seen where people can and, and maybe you can share a story of, of where you've seen a company kind of rally their supporters well we do
2: it for ourselves i mean look I can't be disgenerous. I mean, I'll tell you, we had plenty of VCs who offered to invest in our company. I turned them down. I said, no. They said, what are your terms? I said, it doesn't matter. I can't go to my entrepreneurs and say, look, raise money from the crowd and then turn around and just get a check from a VC. That would be so disgenerous. No, we can't do that. So we raised over $30 million directly from our crowd, our crowd, the crowd we built from scratch. And not only we raised the money from them, but we asked them to introduce us to other entrepreneurs and we asked them to help us expand the community of investors. And it has worked. It's unbelievable. And then recently we've allowed them to have some liquidity and trade and that's working as well. So our innovation, we're not done. You know, Eric, we just got started. We're the first inning of this whole game. I can't wait to get going and get to the next level
0: that's amazing and by the way just those of you that are joining us right now we are talking about startup secrets with activision founder howard marks eventually we will start to pull people up we've got my amazing friends elisa and wolf up here on stage as well so please give them a follow and if you if you just know anybody that's you know in business or gaming you think this would be helpful just hit the plus one you can just add one person all good if not i do see a couple hands raised. don't worry i will pull you up eventually jin or elisa anything from your side before i continue on yeah, I'd love, yeah. To. I'd love to. I'm so sorry, Lisa.
3: Listen, I told you earlier, i like you to perceive me at all times. Please go. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You're so kind of you. I'll make mine quick. Howard, could you tell us what are the core pillars of a successful crowdfund?
2: So Jim, the three pillars we believe is three things. The first one is a CEO who's willing to put themselves out there no barriers, just go out and really go all full force to raise from the crowd. That is the probably the most important aspect. The second one is a compelling offering, something that inspires people, you know, green tech, uh, clean tech, distilleries, uh, alcohol, fashion, things that are exciting to people. And the third one is a well-defined audience, understanding who your audience is. I mean, we have 10% African-American CEOs on our platform, 10%. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that doesn't exist in the VC world. And then 26% are women-led companies. And again, wow, we could do better. We will do better, but that's still a huge jump. And so I think that's really the tenet, Jen. Those three things, you have CEO willing to put themselves out there, a compelling offering a well-defined audience, and the world is yours.
3: I love that so much. What a wonderful question. And I'm curious to ask, well, so first of all, I wanted to make one very quick note on Eric's comment, because there's a lot of party hats in the audience. And it's exciting to see new people. When we say ping or invite a friend, it's in the bottom right screen. If you see the microphone just to the left before the hand raising, you'll see a plus sign. When you hit the plus sign, you can see the Beautiful faces of everyone that you follow that follows you, and you can tap away until it tells you not to, and you'll get a red banner that says you've been too overzealous in its own words. But if you also use the toolbar, you can search by a specific person. If there's someone that you think is really into startup secrets, gaming, or just entrepreneurship and innovation in general, or you can put in buzzwords. So if there's words that are relevant to this conversation, like investment or marketing or startup or Activision, etc., gaming. When you put that in, it's a very cool hack because it actually curates a filtered list that is algorithmically, basically aggregating anyone in your network that cares about those things, that they listed it in their bio as things they'd like to talk about or parts of their profession. And the higher up it is in your bio, the higher up you come up on that list. So if you'd like to be pinned into rooms like this by other people, the higher you have those what I like to talk about things, which are at the bottom of many people's, the higher it is on yours, the more you will come to the top. The other thing I just wanted to share was that when you tap someone's face, you can pick Eric, Howard, myself, or Wolf. You just give them a quick tap right where it says follow or hopefully following because who you follow is way more important than who follows you on this app. Vanity metrics are a joke. It is not like Instagram. It is not like other platforms where there's like a cool factor to have a weird ratio where you don't follow as many people as follows you. It actually curates your hallway. So what you get to see and where you get to go, it's your VIP bands, It's your plus ones. It is your invitation to the party. So if you're not following dope people and people that are inspiring like Eric and Wolf and Howard, then you're actually not going to get access. So definitely give that a follow. And when it does say following, just to the left, there's a bell. When you tap the bell, like I just did, I had sometimes on Eric cause I'm an idiot and I'm going to go always because I want to be knocked into the room every time he's talking and it'll give me a quick ping when he schedules something on the calendar or when he enters the room that he is moderating. So I just wanted to share that cause I know there's a lot of folks that are new to the app and. One other thing is that when we bring you up to stage, if you are new, just don't forget to mute your mic. If you come in hot, we'll probably mute you, but it's out of love and respect to the speaker. Cool. So I just wanted to add those couple of notes and also just ask Howard one other question right before we bring everyone up. Howard, you mentioned the founders in that secret. And I'm curious, when you are looking at potential investments, when you're looking at the founders, what are the qualities and what are the characteristics? Because If you hear me tell it, or at least what I stole from my dad, people invest in people, not products or projects. And the belief in the person that is telling you they can pull it off, to pull it off, is as important as the scalability of the actual entity. So I'm really curious what qualities you look for in the founder that gives you the trust factor to actually put the money where the mouth is.
2: Lisa, I'm glad you asked the question because... If you look at Silicon Valley, they will say the same thing. They invest in people, except that they invest in people that look like them. I
3: believe that part.
2: <laughs> no, I, I believe really sincerely that uh, an entrepreneur, someone who you want to invest in, who has a great idea, who wants to pursue a business, you know, it's not that they're the smartest in the world. Great if they are. Okay if they're not. There's no big deal. Or they're experts in their field and they're the best and they have years of experience to contribute or that they have a great partnership with their co-founder. The real thing that you look for is grit. I call it the intersection of passion with perseverance because it is really hard. Entrepreneurship is difficult. It's not easy. You know, you hear the big stories, you know, the the Zuckerbergs and Facebook and inspires everybody, but that's not reality. That's, a, that's so rare, so, so unique. And this grit is what differentiates. So let, let me give you an example. You put in some money. Let's say you're an investor. You put in 50000 in a company. If the founder quits, you lose your money. It's done. You, you say goodbye. It's not coming back. If the founder comes to you and says, look, we failed. It's not working out. We're going to restructure. We're going to raise some more money. We're going to pivot the company. Well, you're still alive. You still have a chance. Your investment may not be good at that moment, but it has a chance. And the only difference between making money and losing money is that this entrepreneur decided to continue and and not give up. And that's really the difference. Now, I noticed that a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to give up, but they run out of money. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to give up, but their board fires them. I've noticed that. So to me, I looked at that and said, you know what? Why don't we solve this? Let's solve two of the problems. I can't solve grit. I can't solve passion. I can't solve ambition. That's up to the person to have it. That's theirs. That's theirs to have, theirs to keep. It's like happiness. But what if I could solve finance and control? What if I could do that? And that's what I've done with Start Engine.
0: Got it. I love that. So here's what we're going to do before we pull people up. Uh, there's one more point I want to make. There's, I can see a couple hands raised. Don't worry, we will pull you up next. We're coming up on the hour. Howard, there's one thing that you said when you spoke at the, the conference that Neil and I hosted a while back, I remember you were going through talking about start engine and you got to a slide where you talked about the mission and you said the mission, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's to help entrepreneurs, you know, reach their dreams or achieve their dreams. And at the moment I pause for a second. I'm like, okay, that's, that's very Very vague but you said something immediately after that that stuck with me ever since you said that's what a mission is it's supposed to be unachievable right and that got me to think about you know the late tony shea and how he said whatever you're thinking think bigger right because we all have the same amount of time in each day so can you go a little deeper on that and how you even arrived at that mission and then how you got to that mindset
2: sure the mission I think, especially today, with a lot of millennials in the workforce, I think mission-driven companies matter. They matter because they can inspire. It gives people a reason. We have at StartEngine a mission, like you said, Eric, to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. But that's one of our six values. So the mission, we say to people, look, you have to own the mission. If you can't own the mission, you cannot work here. That's it. Don't waste your time. Don't waste our time. The second thing we say is you have to exceed expectations. You can't come here and just be status quo. That's not going to work. Okay. And then we say you have to be a team player. You have to care about others. You have to be curious. And you have to do the right thing. Now, do the right thing in the world of finance is a weird thing. No, you know, not many finance companies have that value. We do. We believe in it. And I have to tell you, it took me 30 years to figure this out. But values are more important than strategy. Mission, you need a vision that is bigger than big, that you can never achieve, because that inspires. And guess what? In the life of our company, who knows where we're going to go? Who knows how big we're going to get? But we will have that mission. We'll always have it. And then imagine if you had a mission you achieved, then what? So It's bigger. I've coached a lot of entrepreneurs about their mission. They they usually use lots of words and sentences. I said, look, this is too complicated. Make it simple. What are you supposed to do? And it works. And so unifying a company around values will make a tremendous difference because it's all about people. You bring the right people together and it
0: amplifies. I love that. I mean, bas- I mean, you're a programmer, right? So you know the, the the culture, the values. At the end of the day, that is your operating system, and then you know you kind of just operating within within those confines, right?
2: That's right. You said it absolutely right. It it is about these layers. You your foundation is your mission, and then you have your values above that. And then you have a stated goal. Our stated goal is to raise $10 billion for companies by 2029. So it's a stated goal. And then you go up there and you have a strategy. Well, what's our strategy? Well, we use crowdfunding to connect entrepreneurs with the general public using technology. Oh, okay, well, that's a good strategy. You know, that may change by the way, but for now that's our strategy. And then keep going up the ladder. And
0: then you know what you're supposed to do today. Amazing. That's simple. Amazing, amazing. Um, Elise, did you want to say something?
3: Yeah, Howard. I think that the mission is so incredibly critical, and I think it's not only the north star. And I love the idea of operating systems, but I look at it as an ecosystem. It literally is—I believe the literal definition of ecosystem—around like living and non-living organisms, kind of like coexisting and creating together, right? And I think when when I look at it from a queen's from the queen's perspective, we actually do exercises with the talent called impossible dreaming. And we, our entire brand strategies, how we work with talent, how we work with every executive in the company is starting from a lens of what is your impossible dream? And once we get through the impossible dream, we're like, okay, so how do we get the M off, right? Like how do these become possible? How do we get there together? And that mission isn't just the shared values. I think it's the shared behavior and it's the community that kind of has communion in that. And I think I truly believe it also creates the loyalty and, you know, this is the healthiest work environment I've ever been in because at some point you build what you never had, right? And so it's just so interesting to hear because you said something earlier as well around diversity and inclusion in a very subtle way, which was in Silicon Valley, everyone sort of invests in businesses and people that look like them. And you mentioned some of the ratios and the percentages of diverse business owners and investing in women. And I think that it's very cool to talk that out. Because I don't know that as an incredibly successful man in the business that everyone would just assume that you have that level of discretion and discernment and passion and commitment to democratizing access to investment, democratizing access to the industry, democratizing access to that shared mission. So it's very cool to hear that. And I, I'd love to hear more about that as we continue. But I do know we have lots of people with their hands raised. So, Eric, without further ado, I'll pass it back to you. Would you like to connect with the audience?
0: Yeah, sure. So thanks for that. Um, and I've I, got every time you talk, I'm just like, I, I, God, I sound so dumb compared to Elisa. So here's what we're going to do. Howard, how are you looking on time right now? I want to be very respectful of your time. I, I'm looking pretty good right now. I'm here. Okay, great. Sounds good. So, okay, we're going to start to pull people up. We're going to go through the first round of questions and then we're going to come back. Uh, Wolf will have questions. Elisa will have questions and then um, we'll open it up again because there's more. I have, I have more stuff I've written down here that I think will be super valuable for the audience. In my personal opinion, obviously I'm biased. So I'm going to start to pull some people up and we're going to go in PTR order. So what that basically means, those of you that are new, basically pull to refresh And then you'll see the order and i'll actually call on your name and then we'll kind of go down the list but the way you would start this off is start it off with my question is and try to keep your question under 60 seconds Uh, please no backstory unless we ask for it, unless we ask for a clarification more so howard than anybody and then we can keep it going and be respectful of everyone else's time so malisa go ahead
3: i just wanted to let people know that it's not intended to rush you it's simply that the quicker you are with your question the more airtime Howard has and the panel has to actually answer it. So we can take the same amount of time to meet their way. But if you spend the whole time kind of giving the backstory to the question, you just don't get as much service. So it's really to support you. That's it. We got some amazing people in the queue, so we can absolutely keep it moving.
0: Perfect. All right. First one that's coming up is Zach, and I'm starting to pull everyone else up. So Zach, please go for it. My question is.
1: Hey there, everyone. Thanks for the invite up here. Howard, coming to you from Ann Arbor, Michigan, actually. My question is.
2: What industries are you most curious about right now? Yeah, Zach, go blue if you went to Michigan. But anyway, (laughs) I would say I am fascinated right now by clean tech. tech. We're getting a lot of companies that want to conserve water, uh, recycle. It's unbelievable. There are a lot of ideas. And you would think, oh, well, there's only a few. No, no, there are hundreds and hundreds. So we're getting a lot of that. I'm also fascinated by the distillery, uh, alcohol, Um, there's a lot of innovation there. You you would think, okay, you know, everything in, in this world of alcohol has been invented. No, new brands, new lifestyles, new ideas. So we like looking at that. In many ways, we have not restricted ourselves to one industry. We think green tech, we think lifestyle, these kinds of companies are great. And and we also have a lot of transportation, electric and non-electric. It's just amazing, mostly the innovation. I think that's what I, I like most. Zach, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot for the time, guys.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Zach. All right, Kelly, you are up next, and then it's going to be Brendan. But please, Kelly, go for it.
5: Wow, this is really exciting being on here. Thank you so much, Howard, for taking these questions. I'm actually on your site right now on Start Engine, and I have a green tech company. And my question is Does Start Engine invest in Latin American companies? My company aims to reduce fossil fuel consumption in road building by replacing bitumen with waste materials to close the loop on single use plastics.
2: Well, I have to tell you, I I grew up in Europe. I speak many languages. I really love working internationally. However, the Security Exchange Commission gave us a great gift with the Jobs Act and crowdfunding, but it's only for American companies. That's it. We are working only with U.S.-based corporations. Now, they could have some interest in Latin America in europe that's fine but it's u.s based companies so to the extent your company is in the u.s great love to talk to you about it but if it's you know if it's a mexican company that's great we respect it but we are not able to help at this moment
0: sorry kelly so (laughs) i'm sure that wasn't the answer you're looking for oh
5: sorry thank you would a holdings company out of the u.s work because i have an investor that's interested as well. And he said, if we had a holdings company out of the U.S., then it would make it easier for him. Is that something that uh, Start Engine would look at?
2: We haven't done much in that world of holdings because many times it's just a shell corporation that is not operating in the U.S. Theoretically, maybe we could do it, but we, we want to make sure for our investors and make sure that we vet companies properly. We prefer U.S.-based corporations at this moment.
5: Okay, thank you very much, Howard.
0: And Howard, before we move on, I think it might be helpful to clarify too. With Start Engine, I mean, what are people getting? Because it's not like you guys are specifically investing. You guys are kind of the vessel, right? You know, people. You guys are the mechanism that makes it happen. Is that correct? And then, if so, you know, what are the what are kind of the main benefits they get from it? Just so you know, people get some more context.
2: Well, it's as simple as investors come on our platform. They use their credit card and they receive shares in exchange for money. And those shares are shares in a corporation that they follow. And their hope is that one day the corporation will grow and they'll be able to either sell their shares for more money or receive dividends.
0: Perfect, simple enough. All right, Brendan, you're up next, please unmute. My question is, and then Melissa, you're up next.
6: Awesome, really appreciate it, Eric and everybody on the panel here. My question would be, I'm, I'm working on a side project and in the really early stages, And I think the biggest worry with myself and the people that we're working on it with is that a larger player who's in kind of a similar industry would see the same idea and try to capitalize on it. Do you have any tips on if there are some bigger players in kind of similar industries, how to defend yourself against that? You know, I have to tell you, Brendan, I never
2: worry about competition. I know it sounds very naive. Hey, Howard, you know, why wouldn't you not worry about your competition? And again... I use my life experience to guide me. And to me, I've never won because the competition lost. I won because I was able to build something that I believe was better or I had a better model, a better value proposition. And it turns out your competition, whether they're big or not, or highly funded or not, if they're not as focused as you are, if they don't have the same passion, determination, the grit, the perseverance that you have, it doesn't matter how big they are. You'll beat them it really doesn't matter at the end of the day you see that all the time so okay you you're worried okay that's fine but i wouldn't pay much attention to that
6: awesome really appreciate it you know i think in the early stages those are the types of things that help continue to make that grit worthwhile so hopefully it goes somewhere and i uh, really appreciate the time
0: cool thanks brendan all right melissa you are up next and following up that would be sophie
6: Hi, guys. Thank you for having me up here. I really appreciate your time. My name is Melissa, and I founded a bone broth company called Beauty and the Broth. So my question is it's kind of double sided. Everyone here is all the moderators are very equipped to answer this, which is, I guess, when Is it ever too early to A, start fundraising and B, if you were to fundraise early, what do angel investors or accelerators kind of look for in the numbers of an early company to invest in?
2: The idea of capital, which is not your money. I mean, obviously you're putting sweat capital and you may be putting your own money in it as well, is... A very personal decision. Some people don't want anybody's money. They want to build everything and bootstrap. And that's very respectable. Others feel that having additional capital will allow them to cut some time out of their business plan and, and accelerate. And that's a very valuable reason. In terms of where to get cap, how to get started, the classic way that we've seen for at least the last 20 years is the angel investor. It's someone who is wealthy who's willing to put the money in at certain terms and get you started. And from there, you will find more angels and hopefully raise more money. That's one avenue. The avenue we built new is equity crowdfunding. So you get the crowd, different audience, different set of investors, certainly a large set of investors because the average investment is a thousand bucks. So I would say, should you raise money or not? That's something you have to decide based on your your goals. But if you decide to raise money, now you have a new option that you didn't have before
0: and Melissa I'll add something too. this is related to start engine a little bit and hopefully this gives you some ideas but I'll just do an experience share angels and entrepreneurs I mentioned that earlier and basically it's a network of investors that are looking to put their money into startups and in some cases if the startup's really easy to understand it's consumer focused it can raise a million two million bucks very quickly from a bunch of people and start engine is you can use that as kind of the again the mechanism to make that all happen for my software company Clickflow, we raised about 400.000 grand, gave about 6% of the company, no board seats, which is great. I think the way to think about this in Angels and Entrepreneurs, and you can check out the website, I'm not affiliated, is if you think about it, if you have the distribution now you can you really have a lot more power because to howard's point uh, a little earlier in march you're going to be able to raise you're going to crowdfund five million dollars and so if you think about it now a lot of the power is going towards the, you know the, the these creators right there's youtube creators influencers whatever you want to call them so attention is extremely valuable so if you don't have the attention you know you can try to you know try your hand at something like angels and entrepreneurs and you know i think you have to go through an application process but you have a lot of different options available there's the sba there's just a whole host of other stuff out there and i do want to caveat this by saying all the stuff we're sharing right now this is all for entertainment purposes this is not financial advice so melissa does that help you
6: no that helps me a ton and this is do you also i guess at the beginning stages and Howard, you've been incredibly helpful as well, Eric. When you sources four hundred grand, did it matter to you if they were in complete alignment? People that could completely help you with your company, or you had visions of your own, and you were happy to take the four hundred K? you knew exactly where you were going with it.
0: Yeah, I think it depends. If it's you know, if, we're, if I'm raising a big VC round um, from you know reputable firm, I mean, I'm I'm going to be in bed with them for a very long time. I, I think it's with the the investors that I'm talking about, the checks that they're writing are, are much smaller. We're talking you know five thousand ten thousand dollar checks even twenty five thousand dollar checks and you know howard is not exactly a fan of this and i don't think i would do it this way again if i were to crowdfund again i did regulation d which means i only raised from accredited investors so to answer your question directly melissa i don't think they're strategically that they add a lot of value but i think they're all great people i'll tell you that much so
6: okay not to take up too much of your time but for angel investors. If you're going to invest in an early, early company, what kind of signs or KPIs do you look for?
2: I will (laughs) not give advice on angels at this point, because I think I want to be very clear about what I believe, how people should raise capital. But angels have been and will continue to be very helpful.
0: Cool. Alisa, did you want to add your thoughts before we move on?
3: I would just say that whatever the KPIs are, they need to be aligned on. So I won't speak to the specific OKRs or KPIs, but I will define them for the room because not everyone is super entrenched in the investment or kind of marketing world. So KPIs are key performance indicators, which most people are a bit more familiar with. OKRs are objectives and key results, which is a bit of a movement shifting away from the way that we've kind of had success metrics in the past. As it relates to investors, whether it's angel or VC or private equity, I think that the most important thing is having aligned measurement. So whatever goals you are trying to set, whether it is revenue goals, whether it is hiring and staffing goals, whether it is, in in our case, we had a talent component, so onboarding the talent roster, whatever it is. So take goals agnostic for a moment, which I know is counterintuitive to the question because that is the question. It's about communication and trust. So whatever the goals are, making sure that you hit them, You hit them hard, you hit them on time, or you hit them above and before deadline, that's where you're gonna build the trust with the investor of any kind. And so for a VC, it's gonna be more about scalability, right? Like they're looking at pace in a really meaningful way and scalability because they want it to be a billion dollar exit, right? But when you're thinking about an angel, it may not be quite as much pressure and quite as much skin in the game, depending on the check size, but they want to know that their money is in good hands. So you need to show up with confidence, with updates. You need to be in regular communication. You need to always be giving them answers before they ask you questions. And you need to be honest and have integrity and make sure that you are leaning on them and giving them feedback and also updates when things are not going well. So I really do believe that communication is at the root of all evil and the root of all heaven and success and and good. And just making sure that it's frequent, that it's clear, that it's concise, and that you get a good read on how much they want. Some are just like, take it and run. Like, don't want to be bothered, but you have to let them tell you that. You can't just not show up. So I would say, usually the, the goals have to do with money, pace, staffing. If it's a commercial product, it depends if it's a good or service industry, right? But whatever you are measuring your success by, make sure it is aligned with your partners, aligned with your investors, and that you are the best communicator on the planet. And also just do the doing. You have to do it. Like you literally just have to perform. So excellence, performance, and integrity are always going to win in my book.
0: Awesome. Well said, Alisa. All right, we're going to keep it moving. So we got Sophie up next, then Nick, and then Fan. Sophie, please take it away. The mic is yours.
7: Hello, everyone. First and foremost, thank you very much for hosting such a wonderful panel. This has been an incredible conversation so far, but I'm actually a employee of Howard. I work for StartEngine. So I just wanted to post a couple of questions that I get pretty regularly from people that I speak with, since I do speak with founders regularly. So a lot of times when people are evaluating our platform, they're trying to figure out how to raise capital. They're looking at really a number of options, both some of those more traditional avenues, as well as our platform. And one of the questions I get very regularly is, how does the, the funding world view equity crowdfunding. And I know that in general, the kind of evolution of stigmas around equity crowdfunding that first started when when it was signed into the JOBS Act in 2012 have very much changed, especially with VCs sending our platform referrals, companies raising with us, and then going to VCs and vice versa. So how has the kind of stigma or conversation around equity crowdfunding changed? And what is the impact of having that crowd invested in your business?
2: Yeah, Sophie, nice to see you. Here's the deal when we started 5 years ago it was ver almost impossible to convince an entrepreneur and a, uh, was a company to raise money from the crowd cuz they didn't know how it would work in fact they would be advised by their lawyers that it's not legal to do that i mean this was, it was really amazing to watch how attorneys who you would expect are highly educated and always knowing the latest of the information would completely botch it. The VCs looked at us and did not necessarily appreciate what we were trying to do. And so I think at the beginning was very difficult. And I think, you know, fast forward five years later, sounds easy, you know, obviously, but it wasn't. It's now become, and especially because of the pandemic, it's become normal or acceptable to raise money from the crowd whereas it wasn't five years ago. So I think the difference is that the lawyers now feel comfortable with it. They've seen that the crowd did not sue the life out of the company. They, they saw that the fraud level was almost inexistent. They were actually, I think the the industry from the VCs, angels, and all, are now, partic- like you said, participating in it. They're investing in some of our deals. We're happy about it. We're, we're not asking for it. That's not our goal. We want the consumers to invest. So that's been, I would say, an amazing thing to watch. And I think we're just at the beginning. I wouldn't be surprised a few years from now that VCs send us companies on a regular basis and say, look, let's see if they can raise from the crowd. And then we come in as well and put the money in. So I think there's a lot of room for collaboration. One of the stigmas we hear a lot was, if I take money from the crowd, will I block myself from getting VC funding down the road. It's a real concern, and I think it's legitimate. On the other hand, I try to instill the idea that you could be VC-free forever, keep control of your company, and grow it. So, you know, different points of view,
0: different ways of looking at things. Perfect. Sophie, do you have any more questions? I mean, if you do, just uh, we can just do one more, and then we can move on to Nick. But if not, all good.
7: Yeah, thank you very much. No, I think that was exactly what I was hoping to touch on. That's a lot of the a lot of the times concerns that people might have around the conversations that we are having with them. But one anecdote that I did want to add for all of the people that are wondering how it is that Howard is able to be so incredibly successful at anything he sets his mind to, it really is visible every single day, day in and day out, that at the end of the day, it is an unwavering truth that there are million small businesses in the United States. And it is Howard's mission to make sure that we can help every single one of them who needs capital access it if we are able to. So I would say, again, just to really piggyback on that idea of dedication and just determination, it really is the conviction at the end of the day that makes all of the difference. So stick with your dreams and we're here to help you if you need it.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Sophie. All right. So Nick, Nick, you are up next and then Fan.
1: I really, really, really did not expect that within my first two hours on Clubhouse, I would end up here. Howard, I want to start by saying thank you so much I'm a twenty one year old and I have grown up playing Spyro, Crash, and definitely Call of Duty my whole life. I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of hours spent on those games. Gaming is a huge part of what has led me to become an entrepreneur and I dropped out at 17. I was coding, got recruited by a tech firm, and now I started my own company. The mission is very simple. We're going to change the way that people service their cars.
0: Hey Nick, real quick, just to keep it moving, what exactly is your question, just so Howard can get to it? okay.
1: Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, let me get to my question. So, we're a servicing company. Okay, We go to people's houses and we service their cars right in their driveways, so they can keep on watching Netflix while that's getting done we do car washes oil changes tire changes right now we're in montreal and we're looking to scale now being a service company it's very different from what you'll traditionally see companies raise funds for what we're really looking to do is scale our locations now i know most of the companies that get funding on the platform start engine it's mostly tech companies How would a servicing company go about that?
2: Well, Nick, first of all, I'm glad you're an entrepreneur and and it's great to see that. Servicing companies, yes, we do have service companies. As I mentioned, it has to be compelling. So if the idea is to just be a car wash with 10 locations and maybe you can offer royalties or revenue share to your investors so they can have dollar one revenue right away, that could be interesting. But by and large, large we look for companies who have the compelling offering to inspire a large group of people to invest and so yes you could do it i think it's possible if you're an, a canadian company unfortunately as i mentioned we can only work with us-based companies but i would say service companies absolutely should participate on our platform i, I believe in it
0: cool nick does that answer your question it does yeah Thank you. All right, cool. Thanks, Nick. All right, Fan, you are up next, and then Phil, and then finally, last but not least, Sean.
8: Hello. Thanks, Eric, Alyssa, and Howard for hosting this great talk. I work in cloud gaming esports industry, so my question uh, is focused on this industry as well. So my question to Howard is, how do you see the future of cloud gaming uh, space what the startup opportunity? do you see that could emerge within the cloud gaming space?
2: So I saw you worked at League of Legends. Brandon Beck, the founder, is a, f- a friend and actually invested with us at Start Engine. And he uh, he credits me with helping him to come up with the idea of have, making the game free-to-play instead of charging a, a subscription, which everybody was doing at, at some point in time now. But I have to say Asia is where I got inspired to Build a free to game, free to play game company, which was a claim. I think cloud computing gaming, yes. I know Google just abandoned their project. That doesn't mean it won't happen. I think absolutely, you will see companies in the space emerge. I would. Here's what I would say: If you're interested in esports, definitely find a way to build an esport company. Whether you make the game and build it in a new way. I think cloud is great because it doesn't mean you're stuck with your device. You can have any device. That could be very interesting. I know Google tried to do it, but I think entrepreneurs are the the ones who don't quit. And so you can build it. I would say anything that has to do with leagues, building leagues, anything around leagues is amazing. I, I, I think you'll see it's already bigger than the NFL. It's just massive. It's a massive opportunity, so I hope you, you participate in it.
8: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Brandon, it's a great guy. If I can press on that question more. Go for it. time actually got this question from my entrepreneurial friends. So within the cloud gaming space, right, we've seen you know, a lot of giant tech companies, Microsoft, Amazon, where I work at, Google, uh, EA, you know, Ubisoft. So these are all companies that are well-funded, listed, you know, with tons of resources and capital. So what opportunity or segment of opportunity that might exist for people who are passionate about this space right? and then only have five people, 10 people, and then are about to go out and pitch and find their first round of angel investors?
2: Look, even Riot Games was a small little company, right? They were tiny. They were in one room. So I don't think the size matters. What's the mission? Are your friends, the entrepreneurs, building a new game that they want to make an esports business about? Are they creating a platform, a technology? It all depends on your mission. So I would say this. It's very hard for people to see the future. Most people don't like change. But if you're an entrepreneur today, the best thing you can do is invent the future and focus on something different and new And my guess is you probably have a great chance of success. And here's why. The incumbents are not. They're just focused on their existing business. They can't see further. It's called the innovator's dilemma. It's well-documented. There's a book about it. You can read it. The status quo in every industry is set. And my view is look it for the status quo and say, it's no longer acceptable. I will change it. And There you have the innovation.
8: Thank you. This is very
0: helpful. All right. Thanks so much, Fan. All right, Phil, you are up next and then Sean.
6: Thank you. Pleasure to speak with you, Howard. I have a question about how you move from having a startup idea to actually creating the minimum viable product. And then also when starting a tech company, how do you recommend going about hiring engineers? And would you prefer giving them equity or paying them salary?
2: Well, you know, I read a book from Eric Reese uh, called The Lean Startup, which is really interesting because the idea is trying to get to this minimum viable product early and not be too proud about it and just release it on the market is revolutionary as, as an idea. It probably is one of the big fears of entrepreneurs where your first product fails and then, you, and then you, you feel like you can't keep going for, but actually that's the opposite. Fine. It fails. That means you were willing to take the risk and may have may have not work. If you didn't try, you would never know. That is critical. I think go ahead, make your product, do something very minimal, throw it out there and see what happens. If it sticks, then you're lucky. You, you got right. If it doesn't pivot, keep pivoting until you get it right. Thank you. And then also to one more thing would be,
6: what advice would you have for a young entrepreneur who's in school, balancing time working on the company and also taking classes at
2: the same time at university? Well, I did that. I did exactly that. I was at University of Michigan. I worked full-time and I was a student full-time and I can assure you it is not easy. I would say this. I had to balance, and that means take real big decisions. You know, there was not much time for partying and socializing. It was mostly business or school, and you become very efficient very quickly with your time. Prioritization is very important, and just get through it. I respect immensely that you're willing to stay in school and continue with your degree. That's great. That should not be a problem. Build something great.
0: All right, Phil, does it help? Yep. Thank you, Howard. All right. Thanks, Phil. All right, Sean, you're up next. Thanks so much for uh, having me up here. Howard, your story is
1: very inspiring, and uh, you've made a major impact in the uh, gaming industry. We, too, actually have an innovative quandary. I'm the founder of RP1, where we've actually created a way to disrupt the gaming architecture by allowing 100% linear scalability of CPU, threading, memory utilization, and bandwidth To show the power of our technology, we're actually launching a technical VR demo in the next few months that will host 2 million people on 33 servers, which includes audio. Basically, we want to cut the server costs and hosting fees by over 500% compared to companies like AWS. We're excited to actually allow developers to focus on creating amazing content and experiences without the barrier of expensive network, server, and data costs. What would be your advice in getting the gaming and tech community to adopt our technology?
2: You know, I think it's very difficult to convince an industry to adopt something like this. However, if you focus on a niche, find something like you mentioned VR, for example, find a segment of the game industry that is underserved, or maybe because they're not not finding the right solution at AWS or wherever else they're going, and you build it. And you build it because you understand their need, the pain that they're trying to solve. And there you have your beginning... Adoption you get you start owning that segment, and then you say, "Okay, well, you know what I want to expand my segment to the next one, and that that's where you're gonna see the growth. It's amazing, so going out there and saying, "Oh, look, I want the whole industry to come and use my cloud computing platform. It's just too hard. I think in most cases, it doesn't work, so yeah, start small, build piece by piece, and I think you'll do you'll do great." Cool, no, I appreciate the advice, Howard.
0: All right. Thank you, Sean. All right. So here is what we're going to do. So we're, look, we're 90 minutes into it. We've got 215, 220 people or so in here, hit the little, well, actually let's pull the refresh first. That's the first thing. And if you're so inclined, there's a little plus button next to the microphone. If you want to add someone in that you think this would be helpful for great, uh, please give everyone a follow-up here. We got Alisa. we got Howard, we got Wolf, all amazing people. Howard, how are you looking again? I just want to be respectful. How are you looking on time right now?
2: I'm believe it or not I have a bunch of things to finish tonight. I so I'm going to give you a few more minutes and then I'm off off to my next project. Okay, sounds good. Wolf,
0: I just saw you unmute. Go for it.
4: I would love to ask a question. Howard, I think earlier today you said that you 600 businesses uh, were financed through StartEngine. Is is that the number I heard?
2: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I I feel embarrassed.
4: Yeah, you mentioned that and you said, "Why did I do 600?" I should be financing thousands of people through uh, thousands of business through my platform. Is that that the number I heard? Thousands.
2: Yes, you heard thousands. I I really feel that we need to make an impact.
4: With that said, what is the main challenge and the hurdle? that prevents you from getting people to finance their businesses through Start Engine. How do we scale that? What, what does it take? What is the, what are the hurdles and the challenges that prevents people from doing this successfully at scale at a much larger scale?
2: So Jin, I've been thinking about this a lot for over the last few years. And first problem is us, us, the company, we are, we need to learn how to scale ourselves. And we've had that conversation even this week and I said to my team, I said, you know, we launch 15 companies a month. Why not 100? And everybody's like, well, here we go again. You know, Howard creates all this craziness. And we need to figure a way how to do that. But more importantly, what would it take for allowing us to do 10,000 a year, for example, or 1,000 a month? That's really interesting. I think the one thing that would make a difference is our, our trading platform. The idea that you come on start engine and you invest and then you can trade i think can take it to a whole new level i think it can be as big as the existing markets we have today like the nasdaq and the new york stock exchange and so this is the kind of scale i'm looking at
4: cool. that's, well that's super fascinating on clubhouse You know, I've been on this thing since November and some of the biggest rooms are these uh, pitch tanks and pitch day kind of places where it's kind of like a Ron Robin and it's a super fast rapid fire pitch session. I've been in some of these 10, 12 hours. I've moderated some of this and there are so many passionate entrepreneurs. There's single mothers, people of color, minorities, everything under the sun. And there's so much passion. What I will say is a huge trend is a lot of people don't understand the addressable market. A lot of them have a hard time defining the business, explaining the business. Many don't understand the numbers. What is the revenue? what is the gross? what's the net? What's the margin? What are the sales projections? three, six, twelve months, three, five years out. What does the comp- competitive landscape look like? What is actually the business model what What is the strategy? Is there an exit strategy? Is there a sale? What's the goal here? Is it just to Getting black? How do you scale it? How do you automate it? Like, what, what's who are your competitors? What's your audience? These are very core questions that maybe ninety percent of the people that I listen to uh, they don't have a firm grasp on. And I'm wondering if these are some of the issues that you are facing as well. Does it have for you to scale from fifteen a month to a thousand a month to ten thousand a month? Is it all on you or is the, the market that you're trying to serve underprepared? How much of it is based on what you could do more of? And how much of it is an addressable market that is ready to use all the tools of Start Engine?
2: I think it's a great question you have. And you know, I don't think I have an answer. The one thing I've noticed is you have this curve for you know the early adopters and then the people who are next. Who are interested and then eventually it goes mainstream, right? We're not at the mainstream level. I think in the adoption curve, the one that Gartner does all the time and looks really interesting. I think we are at the beginning of the the curve where it goes a little bit higher up. Okay. It's not we're not exponential by all means. The industry is still small. I would say it's a little bit of post. Start engine needs to mature and get better at what it does to scale. And I think the market needs to be better educated about the opportunities of of, of equity crowdfunding and the investors out there have to start feeling more comfortable making investments and hopefully making money off of it. I think when all of this is true, we have something explosive.
4: There was one panel I was on. Sorry, this is my last question before I hog out. Howard, sorry about this. I was on one panel and somebody said, I always love to invest in single mothers or people with children, you know, and I'm thinking, why, why is that? And then he explained himself and he said, there's a quote that says there is nothing a mother will do not to feed a starving child. There's nothing a mother will do to feed a starving child. And when you're investing in somebody with children or let's say a single mother, she's going to take that ball all the way to the goalpost. However, she also still needs to have a refined business model and a business plan I would love to either talk to you or somebody within your company to help prep more entrepreneurs, people who are trying to productize and monetize their side hustles, people who are trying to activate side businesses, develop their personal brands and and productize that. But I think we need some type of like a clubhouse incubator accelerator to get them ready, not just for potential crowdfund, but maybe even just, you know, to get even angel investment like Basic principles. So if that's a conversation I can have with someone in your organization, I am all ears. And, you know, I just I, I love to share resources and opportunities and education if I can. I try to do this like a couple times a week for a few hours. So if, if, that, if there's anybody in your org that would love to partner with me on that, please let me know.
0: That's a good offer.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, Jin, uh, if, if, we, if things were different, I would invite you for lunch, but I can't. I'm nicely isolated in my home right now, but we'll connect. I mean, you have my email and give me a shout. Cool. Alisa.
3: Well, first of all, that's what Uber Eats and Clubhouse are for. Totally manageable. And I love that Wolf just shot his shot because he is the most eloquent to do it. I love the rooms that we've been in because we've been moderating some of those pitch tanks and shark tanks and Pitch houses over time, and he's completely right. I think it's probably more than 90%, probably 95%. And it's hard because a lot of times there's not a consolidated way to message it. And I think I'm kind of sitting there like, well, what's the product? What's the point? What's the purpose? And even if we can get to that, it's then like, okay, so is it what's the price? what's the profit, what's the pace? And not everyone even has a sense of what they're selling or trying to get investment in. They just know that they have a passion and they want to fund it. I think that purpose piece is really relevant to the single mother's comment and really anyone that is willing to do anything necessary. My question is a little bit farther along, so my question is when you are so just coming from a, a personal perspective, we just oversubscribed our seed round. And we have the opportunity to do a supersede because there's an incredible amount of interest and we're moving very quickly to series A, but have a lot of hard costs for production and content and incredible staff that just came on and more to come. And so it's a tough decision for any business in a really wonderful place to an extent of, do you just stay where you are and close the round and be done with it and then wait till series A? Do you do a round in between like a supersede with a different note? What do you believe is the most important decision-making factor in when and whether or not to take in money, period, or more money when it comes to VCs, family offices, different funds, as opposed to specifically angels or private equity?
2: Well, I have to tell you, Alisa, you know, I've seen so many companies and I think the two things I found that are the reasons that companies fail is first running out of money, and second founder dispute where there's fights between the founders and that never ends well. obviously I can't solve that one that's clearly you know, up to the founders to decide but on the idea of raising uh, running out of money, I think entrepreneurs always see the amount of capital they need as a sum of money that is sufficient and and they're usually wrong by at least at least half so they or do they always see they need maybe a million, but they really need two. And so I always, when I meet entrepreneurs and they say, Look, I need to raise a million, I say, You really need two or three million. And they're like looking at me like, wow, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But I tell you, what happens is people will say, Okay, you need 18 months of capital. Well, it turns out six months later, you need more capital because you're not at 18 months anymore. So access to capital is important. But if you can raise more money, you should raise more money. If you have access to more capital, take it because you never know a pandemic could start here we go we've seen that happen and you know there's a lot of risk out there and a company needs capital you see you as a founder you need success but a company as an organization which is an entity it needs capital to function out of capital it can't function so
0: having more money is better that's my view
3: more money less problems i like that view (laughs) back to you eric
0: All right. Amazing. So Howard, want to be respectful of your time. So we are going to actually work towards wrapping up here. So um, everyone, please give everyone a follow up here. Lisa, Howard, Wolf. I think Howard will probably end up doing more of these and we're, we're supposed to chat later anyway. Howard, I I want to thank you so much for your time and Elisa and Wolf. Thanks so much for joining. I think this is a good place for us to end and I'll actually post this up to the podcast as well. Any closing words from anyone?
2: Eric, I want to thank you for your leadership, Elisa. You're amazing and Jin as well. Thank you for participating. Eric, I definitely want to connect with you. I think there's a lot of things we can do in in content and I I want to help. I know I helped you a little bit with your book. This book, I look forward to reading it. Sounds amazing.
0: And thank you. All right. appreciate it. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a good night.
3: Hey, Eric, I have one last question for Howard. Yeah, go for it. As the ultimate gamer and creator and entrepreneur, I want to know your favorite game of all time. (laughs)
2: <laughs> of all time that is so funny you know loaded question I, right <laughs> i could say i could say tetris because i used to spend the uh, it. I, I would say
3: Tetris it's the only thing i'm great at
2: <laughs> you know what i think mech warrior 2 is one of my favorite because i i had a say in it and the music was done by this oh, korean entrepreneur so good Oh yeah, he came in as our IT guy. He was doing, he was connecting wow. the computers, and then he shows a de- shows us a demo of what he can do. He was a, it turns out a musician in Korea. His name is Hyun, and I said, okay. He shows us this demo, and we are floored. We fired the original musician for the game. We got rid of him, and we put him in, and it's been it was awesome. So anyway, you never know, things happen.
3: Well, you could absolutely whoop me in that, but I will see you in Tetris any day. And I think that we should do more of these. It is so insightful and so helpful. And I swear I have more notes than I've taken in days. And Eric, the book comes out February 24th, right? That's correct. I would love to support in any capacity. If if all of us or some of us could help in a listening or a reading party or a book release of any sort on Clubhouse, please let us know. I'd like to do early copy buying whatever it's called (laughs) pre-order yeah no i really Um,
0: appreciate that for hmm. sure hey alisa why don't
3: we do
4: why don't you and i host a virtual book launch party for eric
3: yeah i'd love to do a book release
0: yeah i would love that i mean yeah any support would be huge so thanks thank you for offering that
3: we're all in. Everyone that is in the audience, if you haven't followed him yet, definitely give him a follow. You guys are in the future of Marketing Club. It's the little green house right above Howard's head at the tippity top. If you want to give it a tap, you can absolutely follow. You will get invited to all of these amazing conversations, panels, discussions. The Startup Secrets with Activision founder Howard Marks has been epic. You are a legend, Howard. This has been so cool. And honestly, fangirling and geeking out being only a few years into the gaming industry. and doing my very best to turn it on its head. I'm really inspired by what you've accomplished. And it's always super fun to do anything together with Wolf. And Eric is super inspo. So can't wait for the book to come out and really appreciate getting to share the stage.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Everyone have a good night. I'll see you all in Clubhouse tomorrow. (laughs) Good night. Take care. Bye.